0: This is Coffee with Cascade, a podcast by Oregonians for Oregonians on issues that matter. Hosted by Cascade Policy Institute.
1: Good afternoon. On behalf of Cascade Policy Institute, I'd like to welcome you to this special event, Education Freedom in New Hampshire, how education savings accounts are expanding opportunities for K-12 children. I'm Katherine Hickok. I'm Executive Vice President at Cascade Policy Institute. We are a free market public policy organization based in Oregon. Our mission is to advance public policies that promote individual liberty, personal responsibility, and economic opportunity. School choice and parental choice in education um, and expanding opportunities for all Oregon kids has been central to our mission since uh, 1991. Um, We want to promote options that will empower families to choose the education environment that's best for their children as unique individuals. So I'm really pleased today to, uh, to welcome Kate Baker Demers, who is the Executive Director of New Hampshire's Children's Scholarship Fund. She's, uh, She's a really fantastic advocate for educational choice. And we'd also like to thank Dumas and Vaughn who are generously sponsoring this event. New Hampshire's Children's Scholarship Fund helps to administer New Hampshire's nationally recognized tax credit scholarship program and its newly implemented Education Savings Account Program. Kate is a longtime champion of educational choice and opportunity. She helps families find the best learning environments for their children and supports entrepreneurial parents and educators who want to launch new schools, micro schools, learning pods, homeschooling centers, and more. She's had a front row seat to educational reform in New Hampshire, and I'm just really, really happy to have her here. We met through the Children's Scholarship Fund. She runs the Children's Scholarship Fund of New Hampshire, and I run the Children's Scholarship Fund, Oregon. We have very, very similar missions. Uh, We empower lower-income children to attend the schools of their parents' choice through private scholarships. So Kate, I would like to start by asking you about your background, your background as a parent and as an education advocate. How did you get involved in this in the first place?
2: It's it's a kind of funny story. So my first experience was I had a child who was a genius artist. And at the time there weren't very many schools for genius artists. And that made me realize um, that families needed more options in terms of, you know, additional buildings. I was a stay-at-home mom at that time, and I went out and I got a job. My background is in business, so I went out and got a job doing some bookkeeping for some companies, and every dime that I earned went to pay for this genius artist child's tuition at a school, and I thought to myself, oh, man, you know, what about the other people who couldn't do that, right? Who, someone who couldn't go out and just get a part-time job that then covered their child's tuition. So that was kind of my first inclination that there needed to be more schools for genius artists and people might need help with money. So then I worked on three schools. I started a private school and two charter schools. I sat as the board chair of a charter school for three. Oops, Am I unmuted now? It told me I was muted for a second, but now am I unmuted again? Yes. Great. So I sat through those awful lotteries where we would have like 30 seats available for kids and hundreds of kids would apply. 30 kids would get the seats and then 70 kids would cry. And I just don't deal well with crying mommies and children. So I thought to myself, who's helping the rest of these kids? At the same time, my friend Jim Forsyth was in the New Hampshire legislature and he showed me this tax credit program. And I thought to myself, okay, first of all, this is kind of weird, right? Somebody gives me money, then I give them a piece of paper that then gives them a credit. I said, you know what, this, this sounds cool. If you can get it passed, I will quit my job and start the scholarship fund. At the time, my kids were older and I was running my friend's software company. I thought, honestly, pigs would fly before the thing would get passed. Well, sure enough, They passed the House. They passed the Senate. Our governor at the time was a Democrat. He vetoed it. I thought, okay, I'm off the hook. Well, no, the legislature overrode the governor's veto and put our education tax credit program into place. And like a crazy person, I quit a very cushy job with Choco Tacos and air conditioning and started the scholarship fund. And that was 2012. Once it passed, we then went on to have the most challenged school choice program in the nation. So little did I know, I was walking into, you know, I thought I was quitting my job to start a scholarship fund and help kids come to find out, I have become quite a political animal over the past decade. So that's kind of the background, Catherine.
1: Let me stop you there, and would you please explain what tax credit scholarships are? Um, Just about everybody attending this event is um, involved in education in some way and knows very well how, how private education works and how private scholarships work, but in terms of the legislation that is new in the last 20 years, there are many different ways of publicly-funded or taxpayer-funded school choice that intersect with um, private education. Tell us how the tax credit program works, and how is that different from a deduction for charitable giving? So the credit is, in
2: essence, a business or an individual in New Hampshire. Now, we don't have income tax here. The great state of New Hampshire, the live for your die state. But we do have business taxes And we do have um, a tax on interest and dividends. You know, you save all your life and you make a big pile of money and then they try to take some of it. Anyway, those are the taxes we do have here. So the way this works is it's a legislatively passed mechanism. Okay, so the legislature passed a bill saying if someone makes a donation to approved scholarship organizations. Now, we're a regular nonprofit. Um, Just a regular 501 C three but we apply in this particular case to the Department of Revenue and say, please let us accept these donations and offer the tax credit so a donor tells the Department of Revenue, I want to donate to Children's scholarship fund and use the tax credit our New Hampshire Department of Revenue says yes go ahead. They give me the donation and then 85% of it is a credit now credit is a minus. A deduction lowers your taxable income. So that's really the difference. So if somebody gives me $10,000 and the Department of Revenue has approved their tax credit, their credit is 8,500 of it in a direct minus. So somebody can really give me 10 times the donation that they could otherwise make um, with regular funds, so to speak. So that's how it works. There's a few other, um, I'll call them flaming hoops, For example, I have to do some reporting to the Department of Revenue. They said um, they legislated the average scholarship. So the average scholarship started at 2,500 or lower and goes up by CPI every year. I have to help 40% free and reduced lunch kids, which isn't a problem because every time I help kids, it's between 60 and 80%. Um, And the cool thing about the education tax credit is it's still private money. So initially when our law passed, the teachers union and the ACLU did sue the state and we had to go all the way up through our New Hampshire Supreme Court to prove the constitutionality of this. And what the US Supreme Court and our Supreme Court in New Hampshire have said is in fact, that even if you take a deduction or a tax credit against your tax taxes, it doesn't make it public money. So the money that we're giving in scholarships to families with our education tax credit program is in fact the donors money, the people who gave that money to me, and I'm giving it to families and kids. So the cool thing about that is there really are no strings attached. We do run two programs now in New Hampshire, one with private money and one with public. And there are some of our families in the program who really just want to stay in the private scholarship program because they know that it's private money. And on principle, you know, I'm talking to people visiting a free market think tank. On principle, they say to themselves, you know, I wanna just participate in scholarship fund and not the public money. So that's been a really interesting adventure. But the scholarships have been totally awesome. We went from having 50 kids in the first year to this past year, we helped 1,300 kids with scholarships. So it's been really fun. Take took a whole decade to get there. But you know, I have that little engine that could thing going on. So I just stay at it. Did that answer your question, Catherine?
1: Yes, it did. So how did you go from the tax credit scholarships to the education freedom account program? How did that work out politically? And how how did the Children's Scholarship Fund bring both of those together so that you're now running what, two or three different programs? Two, two programs right now. So so it it basically worked like this. So first of all,
2: because I have the most challenged program in the nation, I didn't know it at the time. Right? You know, when you start something, you're better off sometimes not knowing. Right? In this case, I was better off not knowing what what was going to happen. But they've they tried to repeal the education tax credit six times, and again, we went all the way through those court battles. So every year because they would put in bills to, to gut or try to eliminate the program, I would go to the legislature, Catherine, and I would bring families and you know, say, this is why this program is important. This is why you should leave it in place. And so I'd been visiting there in essence, making sure they didn't wreck the program you know, from 2012 all the way to 2018. In 2018, we did put a bill in, for an education savings account that ended up not passing, but that was a really good discussion at the time. The other thing we did in New Hampshire to get to this point, because we had so many challenges legislatively just with our little tax credit program, we really did build this coalition of people. And every Friday during the school year, we have a coalition meeting of all kinds of people in New Hampshire who are interested in this, And participate in the discussion and go and testify in the legislature and help their families and you know it's school leaders it's school advocacy groups it's the associations and it's some of the political organizations also that are here in New Hampshire and. Everyone really does work together to protect the programs that we have in place and did so for so many years, so that bill was in there it didn't pass it didn't pass by like five votes, but then you'll remember the next legislative session was was COVID and the shutdowns. And when that happened, um, we helped 626 kids with scholarships. That's how much money we raised. And this is that um, fall when, you know, the schools had just shut down the prior spring. And then there was 800 children on our wait list who we couldn't help. And at that point, Um, in my mind, I was just thinking like these families need something immediately, right? It was families who had no access to a tutor. They couldn't um, go to schools that were open. So our private schools were open while our public schools were closed. And so I had people that worked in the grocery store calling and saying, you know, I've got to go work in the grocery store, could be able to, you know, feed my family, but my child's school is closed. I just need them to go to a school that's open. I remember a mom calling me saying, my child is doing remote learning and I just figured out he can't read. Uh, He was a fourth grader. And so when you realize your fourth grader can't read, you know, you want to send them to a different school right away. And so there was a lot of that going on. So I shared that information with the New Hampshire legislature. I said, look at these families need emergency relief right now. And that's when they put in the education freedom account bill and then it did pass that session so that's really how we got here kind of amazing.
1: Tell us about education freedom accounts sometimes education savings accounts are confused with 529 college plans. People don't realize that it is not the family saving their own money, that it's a portion of the usually the state spending that's allocated per child in the public system. It's basically a mechanism for having the money follow the child. Tell us how that works. It's really, right. um, I think, the most um, flexible method of education choice that's out there right now.
2: Yep. Yeah. So a family has access to their state education funding. So in New Hampshire, our funding local versus state is about 70-30. So 70% of it is local, 30% of it is state. So yes, we're giving the families only a small piece of their total education funding, but it's the piece that's possible to make mobile, right? And so this is the child's state education funding that would otherwise go to, it used to before, go to a public school if they enrolled there per pupil funding or go to a charter school if they enrolled there. Otherwise it would stop, right? They didn't have access to it. Now the families can get access to it um, in a digital wallet that looks a lot like you might imagine a health savings account. The best way to describe it is it kind of looks like Amazon meets PayPal. Um, It's a platform we use that the families could then access the money and say, I wanna pay this provider and that tutor. I wanna buy these notebooks and that computer. Um, and my team pre-approves everything. So nothing goes out until we say it's it's allowable. But we do have, I think, the broadest allowable expense categories in the entire nation. Again, welcome to the live for your die state, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can use this account to pay private school, you can pay public schools. We've had some families use it to go to out-of-district public schools. You know, you might have a STEM program in another town that you're interested in, and you want to pay tuition to your neighboring public school, to take AP classes, to pay for tutors. It's been totally amazing. So that again is that child's state education funding. Now the family is directing it and saying, this is where I want that funding to go. And I want to pay this provider and that provider. And then we've just been managing the entire logistics of it. It was quite an adventure and undertaking to get that (laughs) running well, but it's running well now. And there's three thousand one hundred and ten children in that program also so really
1: yeah yeah. the technology has allowed programs like yours to do some amazing things and I think that um oftentimes people are not aware that a digital wallet exists it couldn't do it without that tell us um tell us how the digital wallet works for those yeah. who uh, have not encountered that idea before. And also, I know that you have really worked hard to keep this as flexible as possible for families. So you have providers opting in and parents identifying the people they want to be paying. Um, tell us a little bit about how that works so that you you really have a kind of a grassroots up approach to um. Educate. I really wanted the program, so my entire, vision, I guess, and mission for
2: implementation was having it be totally parent centric, right? Again, we put these programs into place to empower parents. And so we use that as the driver for all things implementation. When we put something into place, we basically asked ourselves, are we empowering families by doing this? And and made sure the answer was yes. And then we would put a, a system into place. So There are some people who start this program in other places. They'll start a program and reach out to schools first, thinking they've got to have the schools on board and then the parents can pay them. And we flipped that on its head. We did all our outreach to parents first, and then we had the parents push all the providers into the system. So in essence, a family can say, this is the tutor I use for my child's dyslexia. And I wanna pay my tutor with my education freedom account. They give the link to the tutor and the tutor can sign up. And then my team does the due diligence to make sure the tutor meets the requirements and then adds them to the platform. And so in essence, it is fairly limitless in terms of volume, right? We could have as many providers in there as people want The constraints are just on, do they agree to the terms and conditions somewhat? And and are they qualified to do what they're saying they're doing? And that's the kind of stuff my team does on the back end. For example, we also look at every transaction that a family puts into the platform before we say yes. And so you're right, Catherine, technology has made it possible for us to pre-approve things, so to speak, before the transaction goes through. That way, when a family says, "I want to use this dyslexic tutor for my child's dyslexia, we've already said, yes, they're they're approved to be in here. And then when they go to pay that tutor, we also look at the invoice and say, "Yes, this is correct." And they are paying the dyslexic tutor, and tutoring is an allowable expense. So it's it's really amazing the way that it works. And families have just been over the moon. I mean, it is true that probably about 80% of the families are using it to pay private school tuition, but the other 20% are using it truly like a multi-use account, and many of the families that are paying tuition are also buying textbooks and paying for that bus that might go to and from their house to the school and paying for their school uniforms and buying their notebooks, and so it's just amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. So many people are concerned about accountability for programs like this, and it seems that you've really streamlined a, a method of addressing that so that on one hand, families have maximum flexibility to do what they need to do for their own children. And on the other hand, um, you have the program accountability so that you're guarding against fraud or misuse. And right, because you really can't,
2: can't do fraud if you can't get something unless we say yes. Right. 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 And so it's been a ton of work. So my team has approved about 16,000 orders through the um, Class Wallet platform. Mm-hmm. Looking at every one of those, you know, yeah, I was making a joke earlier to one of my teammates here. I definitely sacrificed my vision to the children of New Hampshire <laughs> implementing this program. <laughs> like, I, my eyesight is terrible now, I can barely see anything anymore but yes, you know, they, they do look at every, uh, I'll just give you an example. Okay. So each of the education freedom accounts is by the child. Okay. So if you're a family and you have two children, uh, you know, I'm just going to use Johnny and Susie. Cause I remember from the Dick and Jane books when I was a kid. Right. So Johnny and Susie each have their own account. You know, Johnny's in third grade, Susie's in sixth grade mom, by accident puts, a a bill into Susie's account for Johnny's sixth grade textbook, right? I mean, we would catch that because we look at the receipt, we'd see it's for a sixth grade textbook, we would know that Johnny's only in third grade, and we would say, hey, mom, this is Susie's, right? Okay, you've got to delete it out of here, and you've got to put it in Susie's education freedom account instead of Johnny's. So it's a huge amount of work for sure. But the fact that now that mom can buy her textbooks means everything in the world to us. And so, you know, it's not automatable, that's for sure. But the digital wallet platform does make it so that we can look at every transaction before it goes through to make sure the family's using it correctly and then help them if they're not, right? Sometimes right. you just need to be shown, oh, this one's Johnny's and that's one's Susie's, this bill goes in the other account. And it's as simple as that helping them. You know, whereas if that go, went through, someone might say that's fraud. Right. And so it's not fraud. The mom just needs help using it correctly. So we do right. pride ourselves on that level of conscientiousness mm-hmm. in both helping the parents to use the program and understand and making sure that everything is is running correctly. Again, remember, I'm in one of the most politically polarized states in the nation, New Hampshire with our first in the nation primary, swinging back and forth between Democrat and Republican. So there's definitely no room for error and we really
1: haven't left any. <laughs> That's great. What, what have you learned observing all of this? Because you, you see what parents want and what choices they're making and when they have the cash to spend in the way that they think is best for their children as individuals what has that shown you about what goes on in education? Well, I first the thing that I noticed right out of the gate when we started approving orders
2: is low income families did not have access to technology like I thought they did. Okay, I thought schools and, and um, you know, people were, were making sure kids had iPads or making sure kids had Chromebooks. And that really was not the case. So many, many of our families did right out of the gate, use their education freedom accounts to get technology. They also didn't have internet and, and my state, like your state has some real rural pockets. Mm-hmm. And so not only did kids not have you know, a Chromebook or a laptop or an iPad, many of them didn't have internet and they can use the education freedom account for a hotspot If they need that on the device, we can't pay for household internet, because again, that would be for the whole family, not just the kid, but we can pay for a hotspot. And so that was the thing that was really apparent to me right out of the gate. You know, I I hate to say that from my middle-class, you know, ivory tower, I did not know that that was a real challenge for our families. I've also seen um, families use these accounts to pay their registration fees in advance For their school tuitions and that was also something we were never able to help with before right when we were just giving scholarships and of course it's not adjust because scholarships are so meaningful, but when we were giving families scholarships. There was a lot of times that they needed money in advance and they didn't have access to that and they would pay these registration fees that sometimes can be $500 for a private school. And then, you know, we'd give them the scholarship and it would carry them through the rest of the year. But those two things stood out to me for sure. I also didn't see, um, there's a lot of special needs children in our program using this for special ed services, um, you know, buying OT and, and PT and, and those types of equipment and, and things. And that's another piece that has been very transparent, I guess, the need is very transparent.
1: Mm-hmm. So tell us again, what is the um, what is the funding level? So the base state
2: education funding in New Hampshire averages, um, that's about four thousand dollars, It's like thirty nine hundred. And then there's this differentiated aid. They pile on top for different demographics. The average is about four thousand six hundred. There's one other kind of fun thing about our New Hampshire program that I don't think anyone else does in the nation is um, we can stack our scholarship and our education freedom account. And so we already allowed homeschoolers in our tax credit scholarship program, which was revolutionary at the time. We had one of the first school choice programs in the nation that included homeschoolers. Now we have an education freedom account for those kids and can also give them a scholarship on top of it. So for some of the families that are low income, they get more money in their education freedom account. We also give them a larger scholarship. They're ranging between, you know, $3,000 is the low on the education freedom account. But sometimes with both, we're getting families close to $10,000. So if you're a low income family, and say you want to go to a private high school and private Catholic schools, for example, in New Hampshire, about 14,000, and you might be able to get 10 of it using our two programs. So I think that's extremely meaningful and impactful. And it's just, you know, almost mind-blowing, right? Beyond my wildest dreams now, I'll, I'll be honest. This whole thing is beyond my wildest dreams.
1: So do you find then that the funding level is meaningful for lower income families? Are they able to make that I've difference? always
2: thought that. I've always thought that, Catherine. Even when I was giving $2,500 scholarships, it was meaningful. Because, you know, the schools would step up to the plate and give those families also school financial aid, you know, other people would help grandparents would help so I don't think dollars make it meaningful or not. Right? Because you're giving the parent just the opportunity to make more choices. and I think anytime you're putting them in the driver's seat mm-hmm. and giving them opportunities and choices that that's really the way to go. So I find it all meaningful, but I also would be happy like helping two kids as happy helping two kids <laughs> as I am helping four, thousand kids. And so you know, I don't yeah. it's all meaningful to me. Yes, if you give a family a scholarship, even if it's a thousand dollars, I mean that's that's meaningful so. You know.
1: Yeah. yeah. Our Children's Scholarship Fund Oregon program is helping uh, close to 100 students this year, which is um, the largest our program has been in a long time. And our scholarship cap is 2000 per child per year. And we also find that the schools are usually awarding a substantial amount of financial aid scholarships. Um, and then the parents are are putting in their portion of tuition. So it's really, it's at least a three-way partnership, the the parent, the school, and the Children's Scholarship Fund. And it's, uh, we find that to be a, a really powerful connection that is making a huge difference for the kids we're able to help. And, and that's, a, that's a, a hallmark of the Children's Scholarship Fund programs. There are um, a couple dozen of us partner programs around the country, and we all require the families to, um, be paying part of their tuition themselves in order to have that buy-in with their kids' education. But uh, we do find that even at uh, what some policymakers would think is a is a, a, a smallish scholarship, it really is um, in many, many cases enough to make the difference for a lower-income family. It does get them over the finish line there for a private education. And so um, it's uh, definitely... Definitely meaningful <laughs> in every way, but people do often question the dollar figures when when they're working on legislation. They're wondering what amount of funding would be necessary to help low-income families have real choices. And it's not as much money, I think, as is popularly thought.
2: And that's why we went with the stackable option in New Hampshire, because the only money that we could make follow the child was that state education funding because remember most of our education funding is local and there wouldn't be a way there isn't even a mechanism to collect that money and so yeah. it wasn't even it wasn't feasible to even make that part of the discussion and the state money right average 4600 is still pretty low and so that's why we made it stackable with the scholarship that way for families that need more help we can give them more help by giving them a scholarship in addition to their education freedom account and so I think that's meaningful. The other thing that the legislature did in New Hampshire that I thought was really fun is the scholarship program that we've been running this whole time is income limit, you know, litmus test. You have to be 300% of the poverty line or below to stay in the program and to get in the program. For the education freedom account, again, which is that the child state education funding, you only have to qualify by income once. And then once you're in, you stay in. And I thought that was a level of awareness from our legislature that was pleasantly surprising, right? Because the challenge is when you're using income limits, right? And you go $1 over the income limit, it doesn't mean you don't need the scholarship yeah, exactly, or the education freedom account, right? It just means you're doing better. And so them acknowledging that this is the child's rightful education funding anyway, And that, you know, the families need stability, I think because that program came about, you know, during the shutdown and during COVID, when we realized that kids really did need stability, that they put that in there. And that was a really smart thing to do. So in our education freedom account program, you qualify by income once. I mean, yes, we're checking every year for the residency to make sure the child is still a New Hampshire resident. We do check income on families to get them a piece of that lower income differentiated aid right so they get more money, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to um, still be 300% of the poverty line or below to stay in and I think that's a really important kind of feature and and to again very conscientious of them to think of that.
1: Yeah, it is certainly. Um, Before I open this up for questions. um, I would just like to ask you, what is your advice for policymakers or advocates who may be working on legislation now. Um, what are things you learned from the policy process and building a political coalition where people would support and then sustain these kinds of laws once they're passed? So
2: I think the reason that we were, and I know this is going to kind of sound crazy, but the reason we've been so successful in New Hampshire is because we had to continually fight for survival. And so I guess my primary advice is and I'm going to use a double negative. Don't not do something because you think somebody's going to do something to stop you, right?
3: <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> like,
2: had we not passed it, because you know, and people be like, well, some people are against this. That's not a bad thing, right? So we've had this discussion year after year in the legislature, and yes, people have said that it should be repealed at different times but that didn't stop us from doing it. If anything, it just made us and our coalition, frankly, stronger, right? And so there's no downside to doing something, even if you think you're gonna have some opposition because the opposition ends up helping you in the long run. I mean, the opposition is what made us good at advocacy, if that makes sense. And so I, I just never say never. I guess, is my piece of advice because you've got it. All the, all the shots you don't take, you don't make, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> That's really good advice. And sometimes you're surprised at what's possible and who ends up supporting you because they may have their own story and recognize the value of something. And, and oftentimes those winning coalitions are made among people who may not have a, a whole lot in common, but have one very important thing in common.
2: Yeah, I guess my other piece of advice too is family forward, right? So anytime I do something, even if it's go to the, there's times that I go to the legislature and I don't talk at all. I'm just there and the families are talking and the families are mm-hmm. telling their stories. And that the, the families in need are really what have driven these programs into being and then kept them in place. And so I kind of see myself more as like a middleman, right, for the families and a middleman for the donors. And so I think I would say that, you know, it needs to be authentic. And actually the people in need should be the ones that are telling you what to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, if you have a question, please click the raise hand, which should be under reactions at the bottom of your screen, or you can also post post questions in the chat and um, Eric Fruits will will read them for us. He is our Vice President of
0: Research. I see Herb. Hey, we've got Herb Gray. Looks like he has his hand up. Um, I've really enjoyed your presentation, Kate. Um, I take an interest in things here in Oregon. I assume your life got better after the Supreme Court decided Carson versus Macon and the Espinoza case from Montana. Uh, What I'm curious about is what's changed minds and hearts among the people of New Hampshire?
2: Great question. So it's interesting, Herb, the Supreme Court, the the Espinoza decision and Carson-Macon, funny enough, didn't really change very much here in New Hampshire, we already knew that was our joke, our running joke in New Hampshire. So when those Supreme Court cases came, um, our legislature and our programs were already running like that. And so I had people write to me, you know, oh, you've been right all along, you know, (laughs) stinkers. So, so we were already operating like that, knowing that it was constitutional and telling everyone it was constitutional. It made it so that when we passed our education freedom account, no one sued us, which was great for sure. Um, the thing I think that changed hearts and minds is two, two pieces. So families talking to legislators does change hearts and minds and none of the bills to repeal the program has ever even gotten out of a committee in this entire decade because families talking to legislators, they'll just you know, vote no on eliminating the program and stop right there. And so the families really do change hearts and minds. The other thing I noticed was that the schools shut down and the pandemic changed everything, Herb. Now nobody even questions what I do at all. So I used to say, okay, you know, I run this tax credit program and I help kids go to private school or homeschool and people would be like, huh, and they'd be a little, you know, wonder. Okay, is that weird? Okay, well, that's out of the box, or you know, oh, it's for alternative ed. Now everybody understands it unilaterally without question. When I say I help kids go to private school or homeschool or get resources or tutoring, they're like, right on, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that the pandemic changed really the whole discussion around education for sure. And that's definitely palpable to me in New Hampshire.
0: The, the reason I ask that is I talk about CSF out here in Oregon, and most of the time I get blank stares. And I'm around all sorts of private school people and homeschool people and so on. I don't know if the answer is promoting CSF more or if people just haven't really thought about this issue. That's, that's I was just trying to envision what happened in New Hampshire that all of a sudden people go, this is a great idea. So
2: I think, too, in New Hampshire, you know, we also our governor is a big fan of what we do. The commissioner is a big fan of what we do, again, because we've been doing it for a decade. Over a decade, we've built up to the point where now people understand it. They not everyone knows we exist, of course, still to this day. But they don't wonder why you would give a scholarship to a kid to do something other than their geographically assigned school. Like everyone understands that now. And so I would just encourage you, Herb, to just never stop talking. As you can see, I go on and on and on and on and on. Never never stop talking about it because that really is just what it takes to get out. I mean, I know I've basically done it one person at a time through the entire state. I mean, New Hampshire's a little smaller than Oregon, but that's beside the point.
1: Has your tax credit scholarship program helped with awareness in that way? Because you you are building relationships with business owners. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and people are still confused about which is which.
2: In my experience the families are confused. Still people don't understand which is which. They just say like, um, I have children's scholarship fund. That's what the families will say. And they can, so it's kind of like Band-Aid. Now I'm kind of like Band-Aid in New Hampshire. They don't know if they have an education freedom account or they have a scholarship. They'll say, I have the CSF. That's what they say. So, you know, it, it did take a decade to get there, but I, I am kind of noisy, as you noticed. <laughs> Definitely not a wallflower. <laughs> Julie thank you for inviting me to this meeting it was great to hear you as well kate i'm just a small school former principal now a development director and i'm fascinated by what's happened in new hampshire i'm not super familiar with your politics but i do know oregon is historically an unchurched state back a hundred years of you know not wanting anything that has to do with the possibility of funding catholic schools or you know private is that something that New Hampshire had to
3: deal with historically oh, sure. or is that actually, just our particular battle?
2: So Julie, based on the data, actually, we have a less religious state than you do.
0: Surprising. So
2: the is The most non-religious state in the entire nation. Mm-hmm. So it is important. Several factors played into this on that front. So people do understand now that families should be able to have a a values-based education, you know, an education for the kids that matches with their values. And saying that is allowed now, it seems like kind of universally. Mm -hmm. But one of the important pieces to our success is that we help kids in any, like I described, education environment in the whole state. And so you really can't say to me, you only do this. You only help Christian schools. You only help, you only do this. Because we've always, and from right out of the gate, had kids in any kind of school that you can think of. The other thing I've done is when people try to push me into that bucket, I tell them you can't do that because if you're singling out schools and families based on their religious views, that looks a lot like discrimination and none of us wanna go there. And so sometimes I go to legislature and they'll say, well, can you give us a list of all the religious schools? And I say, no, I just have a list of all the schools because singling a school out based on their, you know, religious views or flavors could look an awful light, a lot like discrimination. And we don't really want to go there, do we? You know, representative, mm-hmm. whoever, right? And so I've just done that right out of the gate and for the whole decade to the point where I don't think that it's reasonable to pigeonhole. Again, we have such a diverse group of schools and providers participating that it's everything you can think of, the Waldorf, the Montessori, the outdoor ed, you know, every kind of school. And so that um, hasn't really been that difficult to overcome. And again, to Herb's comment earlier, remember it's, we're, we're right. (laughs) <laughs>
0: anyway, Thank I you. mean, I'm
2: not discriminating against people now, nor will I ever, right? That's it. Full stop.
0: Okay. And it looks like we have Donna Kreitzberg has her hand up.
3: Yes. Hi. Um, I'm enjoying the presentation. And for Oregon, I wrote two constitutional amendments to bring school choice and we've gotten approval from the Secretary of State and the Attorney General, and we're gonna be getting those on the November 24 ballot. My question to you is, I've had some people ask me about accountability and we're using uh, the money would go to a nonprofit and we specifically state once the money goes to that nonprofit, it stops being government money, which then cuts the strings. And we also put in protections that will be cemented in the constitution to protect parents. But I get questions once in a while, let's say that mom has an account and her sister is a supposed piano teacher and there's documentation that shows piano is really good for your brain. It makes your brain go from one side to the other or whatever. But someone would say, well, how do we really know that the sister is giving lessons to the child and not just having them watch video games? Uh, That's kind of an extreme example, but on the accountability issue, I, I have to field those kind of questions frequently. And my answer usually is, well, we'll we'll check out sister and make sure she has piano lessons ability. And then we, for the most part, trust parents a lot more than we trust the government. But I would wonder if you have those (laughs) kind of questions come to
2: you. Yeah, tons. I'm so used to that question, Donna, it's not even funny. And so, yes, you're right when you're saying uh, we trust parents is the right way to go as a starting block. But secondarily, remember my description of how my team is monitoring these transactions, um, I, I would go a step further and say that, yes, a piano teacher has to be qualified to do the job. They have to also agree to not give the money to the family. And that's really clear in all of the documentation. They have to also agree that the money can't come from somewhere else, right? It can't be an expense that you could otherwise put in your insurance. They're also going to get tax documentation. So remember when you do, I don't know if anyone's done any consulting here, but if you do consulting, you get, you know, a 1099 document. These people have to have a real business because they're going to get 1099s and this is their their taxable income as a business. In addition, we don't allow families. We'll tell a provider no if they have someone in their family in the program and we ask them that on the application also so we'll say to a family do you have any participating children in the program if they say yes we do ask them to choose do you want to sell services to families or do you want to participate in the program because you definitely can't pay yourself so you're in the gray space with the sister because you could conceivably go to Manchester, you know, a community music school and your sister works there, but you would take every possible step to make sure. For example, Donna, does the sister have other students or are these students the only students of the sister, right? And so that's what my team would be asking themselves. If these students were the only students of the sister, we might not approve the sister. But if the sister had 10 other kids in our program who were not related to them, all going there for piano lessons, then we probably would approve the sister. Does that make sense?
3: Yes, and I i was a previous tax attorney. And so I think yes. the analysis might jibe with an independent contractor's examination of whether they're an independent contractor or truly an employee. And the right. factors that you, anal- in which you uh, examine to determine that would be similar to does the sister have a business card? Does she you know, serve other people? Does she have the license from Juilliard or whatever? That right. kind of thing so that That's makes how sense. we're
2: looking at it exactly. Yeah, my team has a series of eight questions really in both buckets to approve a provider that they ask themselves and to prove an expense. And the last one on both of those lists really is, is it reasonable? Does it make sense? And so I think, you know, uh, the thing I'll leave you with in in this discussion or this piece of the discussion is these programs are not automatable and you can't do it with AI. (laughs) (laughs) It's real people helping the families to correctly use their money within the constraints of the law. And once you realize that you're going to have to look at 17,000 orders with naked eyes, I mean, then you start
1: to realize, okay, I I get it now, right? So how did you get there? How uh, did you know you were going to be doing that when you started this? Did you have any idea of what staffing level you were going to need? Or were you really just going into it with common sense and the law and what do we need to do to be good stewards of this opportunity?
2: I am an applier of basic logic, but my background also is in business and not education, Catherine. So I could see scope in my head. I could also do business processes already. And so honestly, it was planning that got us here and made it so we could launch so quickly. And we could speak to other people in other states and analyze You know, how many orders are you doing? How many people does it take to do those orders? Um, I did need to add two more people than I thought. Right. Based on the volume and the amount of time, what I wasn't ready for is the learning curve for the families. I thought they would know what an invoice was. Hmm. But instead, I had to say, it's your bill. Okay, so we so there was things like that. But as far as the system, we could envision the system in advance, there were some good resources nationwide of people that said, this is what it will look like. And so from a business planning and process, you know, we, we were ready for that, for sure. I mean, we already use a database, we were able to add our program to our existing database so that it ran two programs, we were able to add the digital wallet, we knew mm-hmm. what would look like. We were able to guess on the staffing pretty good. I will tell you, I've done about 5,000 orders myself in times of heavy. So I could have had more people. If I had to do some orders, you know there could have been more staff, right? But that's the kind of thing that you learn as you go. How about language barriers? So we have our application already available in 150 languages and my two of my staff members are bi- bilingual.
0: So I'm kind of curious here, when you were talking about on the, the uh, you know, processing all these uh, these, these bills, um, it, it sounds like you you there's a, an issue with scaling, but I'm thinking from a political standpoint, you know, one of the things that I'm sure opponents would push back on is they'd say, well, the admin costs are just are so phenomenal that, you know, we're giving you all this money and, you know, only pennies on the dollar are actually going to the kids because you're soaking up all those overhead, not accusing you may graph or anything like that. Just, you know, it sounds do, like what actually. you're describing that's is a fair. lot of work.
2: The thing you're missing is they do accuse you of that. Okay. Okay.
0: Oh, I figured that. So
2: we run 90-10. We run 90-10, which is like gold standard for a nonprofit. And they still accuse you of taking too much money. The cool thing is they did make 10% a cap. So if we can run more efficient, we can give more money to the families. And as you know, that's our entire motivation anyway. So the way the program functions, we are motivated to run it more efficient and give the families more money. But yes, we run 90-10. And during the startup phase, honestly, we needed every dime of that 10% and fundraise for some of the startup costs because it didn't even quite cover it. Over time, I think we'll be able to lessen our administrative costs and raise the amount of money that we give families. But as a standard, I mean, 10% is gold standard for nonprofits anyway. So- It's it is. So that's really
0: good. So I mean, so you're saying you can, you can or you will hit that ten percent.
2: Oh no, ten percent the max. We're already under that.
0: Oh, you are okay. Wow, because it sounds like a lot of work. That's what I was asking.
2: Oh, it's a ton of work. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We mean fighting machine. I mean, there's no moss growing on us. I mean, we're clawing through it every day. I mean, my poor team. You know, keeping up with me. You know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember when I met you, it was you. I was by myself.
1: It was you in a
2: scholarship program. And (laughs) yeah, now there's seven of us here in New Hampshire. And then remember our, um, the approving our tax, you know, the tax piece of it, approving the awards is the program team in Children's Scholarship Fund National. Mm -hmm. So we scaled really smart, Eric, is what I can tell you. We scaled it really smart. It definitely still requires people looking at things. It's scalable probably to about five or 10,000 kids, and then I'm going to have to start to adapt differently. But maybe by the time I get there, I'll see some ways to be even more efficient or automate some of it. But I think first and foremost, the fact that I did everything first and then was able to farm those jobs out kind of made it so that we could compartmentalize, if that makes sense, from a business yeah.
1: I would encourage everyone also to go to your website, the New Hampshire Children's Scholarship Fund website, because there are sections there for the tax credit scholarships and for the education freedom accounts, and the handbooks that you have there and the frequently asked questions really explain very well how those programs work, how how families apply, uh, what kinds of expenses can be approved, and so it, there's there's a lot there that explains in detail the logistics of how it works, the guardrails you have, the approval processes, and really the um, uh, the flexibility for the families. You're really empowering families while keeping it all very straightforward. Um, it's, it's just, you know, what you've done, I think, is extraordinary. And it's wonderful that it's all right there so that people can well, I made that
2: Catherine so people could steal it that are starting other programs. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just go to the website, take it, use the handbook, you know? I don't mean, nobody needs to reinvent the wheel, you know? Just take my stuff and put your name on it. Have a good day, you know?
0: <laughs> it looks like Donna has her hand up. Uh, did you have another question, Donna?
3: Yeah, I was just wondering what the strength of teachers unions are in New Hampshire. Uh, how much I of mean, a force
2: It's the first in the nation primary state. And we have tons of media here all the time. I mean, they have huge budgets. There's, you know, five different union groups. I mean, they're totally way. I mean, every, every, they, they hold all the cards, Donna. So yes, it's like a David and Goliath thing every day.
1: Mia.
4: Hi, thank you for your time. I want actually wanna go back to, um, Herb's question, because I think we're all dancing around the same question of like, how the heck did people sign up on, for this um, from a general public standpoint? Um, I'm, I'm living in Indiana right now, and I'm a college student. So, you know, everyone wants to talk about healthcare and inflation and abortion and all these things. But the minute I bring up school choice, it's always considered a special interests sort of issue. And no one really cares about it or, you know, the people who are opposed to it usually say you know here in indiana our new education savings account program is created only for um children with special needs and so there's a sense of oh you know it's just one of those things and it's not going to go anywhere um and then people who are pushing for the program to expand all of a sudden they're being accused of oh my goodness you've just given up on public schools why would you do that so even in a state like indiana there definitely is Um, more indifference than even pushback, but there's just this sort of indifference and
2: uh, this life. Yeah. Um, You don't hear from them until they need you. Okay. Most people don't think about this until something happens to them. Okay. So you go through your daily life and yes, you're not thinking about education, right? You probably put your kid on the bus. They go to the same school you went to when you were a kid. Right. You're not thinking about education policy. You're not thinking about education until something happens to you. Right. Until your child is bullied. Then you're calling me until you realize your first first grader can't read. Then you're calling me until you realize right that that kind of thing. And so I would just tell you that don't allow indifference to frustrate you because it's not necessarily indifference. I think sometimes it's just they don't know. Right. Every again, I would be happy helping two as uh, two kids as 3000 kids and so no balls move that you don't push right also. The other thing I noticed is to your point where you're like, you know, when people are saying you should expand a program, then they they always fight with you. Okay, so the opposition, if it's not from one piece of it, it will be from another okay like that never stops like if it's not about the money so here's an example. So the teachers union in New Hampshire says, our program destroys public schools on the one hand, then they'll also say in the news that not enough of the children in the program came from public schools. So it costs too much, okay? So there's just saying the same, right? I mean, either you want the kids to come to public school or you don't, you can't have it both ways, right? So those types of arguments are really political And it doesn't really have anything to do with basic logic. So just stick to basic logic and talk about families and kids and don't worry about people that are indifferent. They'll get it
1: eventually, you know? Thank you. I think we have time for one more question before the top of the hour. Herb.
0: So I was just going to make a comment that um, part of what's, critical about both the Carson versus Macon case and the Espinosa cases, there was a big fight over whose money is it? And if it's private money, it opens up the door to say, how many of you out there would like to give money to what you care about rather than to the government?
2: Correct. A lot of people give us, a lot of donated donors come for that. They don't want to pay tax. Who wants to pay tax anyway?
0: Right. Well, and the other thing is that most people in Oregon aren't even familiar with the Oregon political tax credit, which is, and I tell people, okay, you either hand the money to the governor, or you hand the money to who you want. So it seems to me there's a lot of opportunities here for messaging, uh, you know, to, to Mia's point, where we, we say, you have an option here, and once you give, you're not giving to a particular family, you're giving to help kids. So. The TV stations around here run toy drives and food drives and everything like that. And everybody thinks that's a great idea. Why not do that with education? You know, have the conversations that you have the chance to change the trajectory of education for kids. Yeah, and and got by the, the way, you can do that in a tax-advantaged way.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's no downside to try and pass a tax credit law in your state. I and mean, you've got 100 advocates right there in your scholarship program.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much, Kate. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this conversation. It's been really informative and a lot of fun. Um, Kate, do you have any closing thoughts? No, thanks for so much
2: for having me, you guys.
1: <laughs> well, keep up the good work in New Hampshire. We'll be following your program, and I hope you follow our work out here, too.
0: Thanks for coming, Kate. Thank you. Bye.